Welcome to the Market Urbanism Podcast. I'm your host, Nolan Gray, a writer for Market Urbanism and a, a graduate student in urban planning. My guest today is Dr. Sandy Ikeda, a professor of economics at SUNY Purchase and a visiting scholar at NYU. Uh, Sandy, welcome to the program. Hi. Thank you, Nolan. It's great to be here. Thanks. Um, so we're going to be talking about Jane Jacobs today. Uh, earlier this year, many celebrated her centenary, uh, cementing her status as probably one of the most important urban planning thinkers of the second half of the 20th century. Uh, of course, this wasn't always the case. Uh, when she first published her classic work, The Death and Life of the Great American Cities, she was an outsider, mostly reviled by the establishment. So I'm curious if you could just walk us through uh, who was Jane Jacobs, how did she make this transition, and uh, more broadly, why should classical liberals be interested in her work? Okay, well, let me just start with maybe the point about her being reviled. I don't know if that's quite true, not from the beginning. Um, mm -hmm. You know, she had uh, some friends in the uh, architectural field, and she published uh, articles in Architectural Forum, and before that in the Iron Age. And so, I mean, it's not that she was well-known, but uh, in, in a particular area, she'd, she'd published uh, quite a bit. And, uh, and had a decent reputation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, going a little bit uh, before that, her her academic, there's this sort of myth um, that surrounds her, uh, uh, which says something like, um, you know, she dropped out of high school, she came to New York and and suddenly wrote this book <laughs> after uh <-huh>. taking, <laughs> taking a few classes at, at Columbia University. Um, and it's, it's partly true. Um, I don't think she dropped out of high school. Uh, there are several biographies of her out, uh, and uh, you know, she didn't do very well. She, she did not do very well in, in, in high school because she was uh, one of these people who was bored with the curriculum and, and got into, into trouble a lot. You know, not uh, doing destructive things, but but because she wasn't paying attention and that sort of thing. Um, and so, I don't think it was a happy time for her. And in the 19, I think it was 1934, she, um, I'm skipping a lot of things, but uh, uh, she moved to New York uh, to live with her sister, and she was able to get uh, various jobs um, doing this and that, and uh, uh, later uh, took some classes at Columbia University. In fact, she took quite a few classes at Columbia University Extension, and um According to my colleagues, uh, Pierre Desrochers and Joanna Zermak, uh, her, um, and they're, they're, they are actually, uh, Joanna and, and Pierre are, are going to publish an article in a volume of Cosmos and Taxis that I am uh, guest editing mm -hmm. on, uh, on the work of Jane Jacobs, and, and they talk about how her, her um, studies tended to focus on, on economic geography, which is... Uh, makes sense given her her knowledge of, uh, of what she was able to contribute to that later. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, so she had an academic background, but she was you know, a brilliant thinker, uh, an autodidact, um, not completely isolated, but really much an, an autodidact. She, she, she read and read and talked to a lot of people, uh, just a, a brilliant person. And then, so by the time she wrote her um, first uh, major work, uh, she had written actually other things before that, but uh, the book, uh, The Death and Life of Great American Cities in um, 1961, it did sort of come out of the blue, I think. It, it 
it, it evolved out of a, a shorter article that she had written for another architectural publication. And uh, she's encouraged to, to develop it into a book. And, and uh, you know, the rest is history. And it, and it did, that book did at that point uh, make her uh, some enemies in the profession. Uh, mm-hmm. She was criticizing some, some icons uh, in the, uh, uh, particularly in the first part of the 20th century. As I understand, uh, Lewis Mumford had some was very wrote a very nasty critique of death and life early on. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they were friends, or you know, they uh, Lewis Mumford actually uh, uh, helped her. She's one of these the people. Oh wow. Uh, who who uh, you know uh, sort of uh, was a I don't, know, I don't know if mentor is the right word, but they you know they were they were uh, in touch with each other, and, and Lewis uh, actually encouraged her and helped her in different ways. Um, you know, William White is another one uh, uh-huh. who uh, she remained friend, and so there was a kind of a falling out. And, and William White did most the a lot of the the famous place place studies of of squares in in New York City. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yes, exactly. And so you can see his influence on her in terms of you know looking at the at the micro foundations of social interactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think later. You know, it was there was a, a slight warming between um, Jacobs and Mumford. Um, in fact, um, in two thousand five or six, shortly before she died, uh, Columbia, excuse me, the City College of New York established a Lewis Mumford lecture series, and so and she was actually the first uh, guest oh, lecturer wow. in that series. Uh, a little bit a bit ironic, but I don't uh-huh. think it, you know they were enemies, uh, mortal enemies to the end or anything like that. Well, that's not. I mean, I think I think people like the mythology of uh, maybe it's comforting to them somebody coming out of the blue with no experience and revolutionizing a field. Uh, yeah, and they maybe they like the mythology of oh Mumford and all these other folks hated well, her mean, or something like that. Yeah, I mean she she's a very original thinker, and uh-huh. so she did step on a lot of toes. And she was not credential. Um, well, neither was Mumford, but I mean she, she's not credential in the sense in the sense of having an academic position. Uh, she was a public inf- intellectual, like a lot of you, you know people. Not a lot, but but you you could be in those days. Um, a little harder to do these days, uh, and uh, you know, primarily a journalist uh, with no academic affiliation. And so, when she started to do more writing in the field of economics and social theory, um, I think it was hard for people in those professions to take her seriously. Uh huh. Yeah, and and you mentioned uh, William White's studies on social life. Um, uh-huh. It was actually a great the great documentary, uh, "Social Life of Small Urban Places." Yes. Um, yes. That's wonderful. Uh-huh. We'll try to link okay. to that in the in the associated article on market urbanism. Okay. Um, so let's continue with maybe yeah. the context of the death and life before we dive into some of the big ideas. Um, in the 50s and 60s, American cities are undergoing pretty revolutionary change. Um, right. Part of this is driven by folks like uh, Robert Moses, um, right. you know, planning departments all across the country. What's happening in New York City, specifically what was happening at Jane Jacobs' time that motivated her to write this book? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, the big picture is this is right after World War II. And you have to understand in World War II, almost every major city in the world was bombed, right? Uh, almost bombed out of existence in some cases. I mean, we're talking about... London and and Paris and Tokyo and you know just all over and so 
the only major city that wasn't touched in that way directly by the war was New York City. Um, and so it became a mecca for a lot of intellectuals and artists uh, who were you know, trying to find a place uh, to, to, to practice um, away from their, their bombed out cities. And so that, that, you know, there's that going on, plus these other uh, cities in, in Europe and elsewhere were trying to, to, to rebuild. Uh, so a lot of capital uh, that, was, that was being created after the war uh, through trade and whatnot uh, was, was going just, just to replace what had been destroyed, whereas in New York, um, there's a tremendous amount of wealth being generated, and and that went into the manifestation of, of that was was in in buildings, in infrastructure and buildings. And so there's a tremendous amount of of growth going on all over, um, and uh, New York in in, in particular. Um, and Robert Moses, who you mentioned, major a towering figure, I mean. Uh, no pun intended, in, in New York City history because uh, it was his vision of a car, one sort of generalized, a car-centric view of the city of tomorrow that uh, was highly influential. And so he built a, a lot of, of uh, highways. I mean, he built a lot of other things. And when I say he built, uh, I almost mean that literally, if you read Robert Caro's uh, The Power Broker, uh, his imprint is on the design of almost all the highways, parks, public housing that was built in um, New York City and around in the surrounding regions uh, post World War II. Uh, and so his vision was highly influential. Uh, and it, it, again, it was a car-centric one, and it was a very much a top-down um, central planning at the local level view. His mm -hmm. approach was was very much. Um, you know, in accord with the kind of um, central planning that was going on at a more macro scale uh, elsewhere in Eastern Europe, Soviet Union, um, um, China, and, and, and India. Uh, but, uh, you know, on a smaller scale, but the same kind of attitude where you don't look at the details of everyday life, but you try to impose uh, a vision on uh, the people who live in a particular area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting theme. Just this idea of the, the spirit of the times as very much emphasizing uh, great men with with giant plans, right? Uh, with expertise. And, and actually, you asked earlier about what what, what should classical liberals? Uh, why should they be interested in her work? And I'll just say this. I'm sure we'll elaborate on this as we go on. But um, why should they be interested in Jacobs? Well, you know, her work speaks directly to the kind of critique of central planning that uh, Ludwig von Mises and, and Friedrich Hayek and others developed with, re with respect to the macroeconomy. And her criticisms of local central planning echo very strongly, in fact, you know, more than echo, they, they really have the similar, very same elements in some cases to critique um, central planning. Um, and I think you know, her, her application of that particular approach, and, and to my knowledge, she was not influenced at all uh, by Mises or Hayek. She sort of came about this um, on her own. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, classical liberals would, would, would uh, gain a lot by reading her particular, um, her particular angle on, on central planning. And I think it, it complements very much the uh, economic uh, story that comes from the Mises-Hayek critique. 
Well, that's a great segue. Let's jump right into that. And uh, mm-hmm. recently, you wrote um, you wrote a paper for the Review of Austrian Economics on the importance of this concept of local knowledge to mm-hmm. uh, Jacobs's critique and and how it parallels. Um, Hayek's critique of of the orthodox urban planning of the of the mid century, very right. much top down centralized uh, economic planning. Um, right. Why does local knowledge matter? What does it mean specifically in an in, in an urban planning context? Yeah, I think what what's great about Jacobs and what really attracted to me her to me is that she put a lot of of, of flesh on the kind of abstract theorizing that that Mises uh, and Hayek did. Uh, or, you know, they, they, they gave specific examples as well. But in terms of the uh, local uh, manifestations of the knowledge problem to central planners. So, for example, her critique of Robert Moses largely consisted of, of people like Moses who were doing, trying to do this top-down planning, ignoring the, the way that people actually used public spaces, streets, sidewalks, plazas, etc., how they actually uh, use that space and kind of create an unseen infrastructure, social networks, social capital, and, and Jacobs is one of the first, if not the first, to use this term social capital in a way that it's used today in sociology and economics as connections between people that add value to daily life. Um, and so this, this unseen infrastructure uh, gets destroyed or torn apart when you do something as simple as narrow a sidewalk. Right? She said what she, she described how uh, things that she observed as uh, when you narrow a, a sidewalk, uh, informal contact uh, becomes harder. Uh, children uh, don't play on sidewalks because it becomes less safe. There are fewer adults around. To, uh, to monitor them, even if they're strangers, and things of that nature. I mean, there are all kinds of, of, of things that contribute to the safety of children, to the security of people in general, from, doing, from changing um, the physical environment and how that impacts on social interaction. And that's something you just don't get if you're looking at a city from the top down. Mm-hmm. Right? If, you have a bird's eye, if you have a bird's eye vision of what a city should look like. And so her main critique of, of, of those guys, Moses and Corbusier and others is that well you know you don't before you try to improve a city or try to create an ideal city you should understand what a city is you know understand how a city works what is it that public spaces do um, and that is an aspect of local knowledge that Mises and Hayek were um, talking about but it's it's a, it's an application that I had never thought of before but uh, as soon as you you know it's one of those things as soon as you hear about it you see it everywhere yeah that's that's really one of the things i've loved about jacobs's work is it's 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 pretty easy to go out and do the kind of work she's doing yeah Um, you can just walk around your neighborhood and and think about you know why are people using the space this way why are they not you know just right you can can live it in a way yeah no Um, exactly Uh she paints a really nice picture too of this when she's talking about um public housing projects where she's talking about the giant yards um, yes and she's discussing how they check all the boxes as far as the planner is concerned. They, you know, a certain proportion of open space, um, a certain proportion of greenery, uh, and then these places become not only unused but actually dangerous and, and resented by, um, the, or the, the the residents resent them. Right. Now, I think the 
in getting back to local knowledge or, or what is sometimes refers to referred to as contextual knowledge, right? One size will not fit all. That is, you know, what works in one place uh, may not work elsewhere. Uh, you have to appreciate, um, you know, how the people in that particular location use the space. So if you're dealing with, um, I don't know, some a, a neighborhood in Harlem, for example, or, or uh, versus a neighborhood in lower Manhattan, um, what are the norms of behavior that are acceptable in one place versus another? How do people interact? How do people use the sidewalks you know, in each space? It, it's going to be different. Um, so there's a very strong empirical element in Jacobs that uh, I got from her that you uh, may not get so much from from Hayek or Mises, uh, but this sort of you know uh, um, intelligent observation uh, of of the environment that's necessary in order to uh, plan uh, intelligently. And by planning, you know, her critique of planning applied both to governmental planning at the local level as well as private development. Mm-hmm. Um, these uh, lessons that that private developers have also taken from her and others who you know, wrote in a similar fashion in designing um, plazas, uh, malls, especially shopping malls, and, uh-huh. and how malls have evolved, et cetera. Uh, so that's, you know, context is very important here. Yeah, I guess another another element of that, if, if you take local knowledge, if you take the importance of local knowledge seriously, another part of that is you want to have, for the most part, decentralized planning uh, among right. people in the circumstances. Um, another, yeah. another idea that you discuss in, in some of your earlier writings on her is, is the emphasis that she places on spontaneous order. Um, mm-hmm. I think a pretty famous example of this that many people remember, uh, is the, the sidewalk ballet. Right. Um, mm-hmm. what, what is spontaneous order and, and, and how does Jacob see it happening in cities? Um, well, a spontaneous order is an order, a social order that's unplanned for the most part. Um, it's, 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 it's a complex concept, and it's a little bit elusive, uh-huh. uh, because uh, no order uh, emerges without planning at some level. And usually the, what's referred to as spontaneous order is an order that emerges above a certain planned order. So, for example, if you design um, a, a plaza a certain way, um, then people are going to use that that plaza, the space that uh, uh, you know that's open to the public in a particular way, which you may or may not be able to predict. Okay, so the plaza is designed. Uh, that's a that's a, a completely or or most largely planned element. But what emerges from that, the unplanned or spontaneous, uh, and it could be an order. It may not be an order that that emerges from that is uh, wh- how people use it. Okay, so there's a there's a there's an order that emerges sort of one level, at least one level above the, the planned order. Um, and the reason why I say it may not be a planned order is because Jacobs is writing precisely uh, to criticize uh, the design of spaces that discourage the creation of order. So, for example, um, going back to William White, you know, she she uses a lot of William White examples. That a space has to have uh, certain have to has comfortable seating. It should have some kind of focus. It should be located nearby working spaces, for example, so people will actually use it. And if people use it, they will attract others. Um, so 
um, so a spontaneous an order is is um, a relation among individuals that's uh, 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 from which one can sort of anticipate what's going to happen next, right? If 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 we would we would call a social order we would call a social situation disorderly if from the moment that you happen to be observing it, you, you don't know what's going to happen next, right? What's, the, what's, what's coming down the road is unpredictable. But if the, the more sort of predictable it is, given the environment, then the more orderly uh, we say it, it, it can be. That's one way of thinking about it. So if you're, in a, if you're in a plaza, you can be fairly secure that nothing horrible is going to happen to you or you're not going to get hassled uh, if, you're gonna, if you go there. There's that expectation that, that you have and that others have and that mutually reinforce each other. Um, so that's extremely important, you know, at all levels of uh, social uh, interaction, um, and, you know, from the macro level, uh, but uh, as well as the micro level, the micro foundations that Jacobs was talking about. Mm-hmm. One of the examples that, that White um, emphasizes in the, the documentary that we were discussing is um, mm-hmm. the way people never bump into each other in a plaza um, people people will be on a projected path to, to bump right into each other and then at the last minute without any coordination will conveniently yeah. move uh, and, and and he just points out how um, you know it's a normal part of everyday life but when you're watching it from above it's actually pretty impressive to watch this happen hundreds of times every day <laughs> yeah and and you know uh, of course, not everybody knows those rules, and you know, if you mm-hmm. walk through Times Square, where it's ninety percent, um, you know, it seems like ninety percent tourists. That actually may be an underestimate. <laughs> you know, you're, you're you're bumping into people all the time, and that's partly because it's so congested, but also because the you have people coming into that kind of environment who are not used to working or, or walking, I should say, in crowds. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it takes some practice. You have to learn. You have, see, you have to learn not only what the norms of behavior are, what the rules of the road or rules of the sidewalk are. Uh, you have to have an expectation that other people know that. Okay. So if you if you're walking towards somebody, uh, let's say the rule is you pass them on your right. Okay. Uh, so you, if, in order for you to, to confidently do that, you have to expect that they know that norm as well, so that they will pass you on their right. So you have to know what the norm is. You have to know uh, that they know it. But in addition to that, uh, you have to know that they know that you know it, and vice versa. Right? So th- these kinds of, of, of social uh, structures, if we can call them that, uh, that, that are built on these norms take some time to, to develop. We have to learn these things. Uh, it's amazing that we can learn these sorts of things. Um, mm-hmm. Language would be another example of this. But So, so uh, that kind of uh, social interaction that leads to unplanned order uh, is uh, one of the uh, um, you know, central uh, phenomena that social theorists like Jacobs and economists and others um, study. Mm-hmm. Jacobs, by the way, con- did consider herself an economist rather than, you know, uh, more than anything else. She was an economist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can talk about some of her, her broader work here in a minute. I want to mm-hmm. keep talking about this idea about norms. Um, in a way, this is a this is a really important uh, conception of how social order works in society, just emergent norms. I think you mentioned right. uh, Times Square. I think the D.C. equivalent would be... Um, 
tourist on the metro during rush hour okay. uh, standing near the doors you know things of this nature yes. um she also talks about norms in the context of of just the safety of streets um and and just the the connections between neighbors uh, right. another character that frequently comes up is is the local grocer who uh, you're comfortable leaving your keys with or having them pick up your mail. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, the world of, of, uh, 2016 is different from the world of 1961. Um, uh, in most places. Uh, now there's some, some places in New York where you still can do that, uh, uh, less so now than then. However, you know, other things have replaced it. It could be a coffee house. Uh, you know, it could be a deli. It could be, uh, other things, but in in a city like New York, you do have the sort of what um, William White referred to as a familiar stranger uh, that you don't know very well, but but trust enough to to uh, do certain things. Um, uh, it's interesting what what Jacobs uh, says in in um, Death and Life is that it's important in order for this to work that we don't know this person very well and they don't know you very well. Uh, because if to say leave keys or some valuable thing with someone, you have to tell them your life story, you know or where you came from, or, uh, how much you make, uh, you know who you, what your relationships are, that sort of thing. You probably wouldn't do it. It's it's sort of the uh, private. It's the privacy that you can retain in large cities that enables you to trust other people. It's it's what other people don't know about you and what they don't know about. Uh, what you don't know about them and they don't know about you that enables you to trust them in certain ways that otherwise you wouldn't be able to, uh, which I think is a really uh, a key insight uh, because a lot of uh, mistakes that designers make is uh, to try to artificially bring people together in a way that they may not want to be brought together, right? That you know, may not want to share certain things uh, with other people. And so even though, the, the thought behind a particular design, uh, you know, like a, a nice lounge in an apartment building or a public space, just like, you know, people may not want, want, want to use it simply because you have to share too much of your private information um, to use it. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, so, so these kinds of uh, norms uh, uh, do exist. And I'm just saying that, that the form that they take changes uh, from time to time. Uh, and we have to uh, learn uh, what they are. Uh, oftentimes, uh, we, you know, uh, it's a tragedy if, uh, if the coffee house you go to where you know everybody and, and you can get the, the latest news and things like that, if, they, if that closes, right, and it gets replaced by, um, you know, something else, a restaurant or, or a clothing store or something like that, uh, it, it's a real loss, and, but that's the nature of a city, and, and Jacobs appreciated that, too. Right? The city, a living city is, is one that's full of disappointments as well as excitement and, and optimism. Right? You can't really have excitement and optimism without the disappointment and some tragedy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or, or maybe just new new residents coming in and, and norms about you know social behavior changing. No, oh, exactly. Yeah, that happens. Yeah, um, I was talking about this recently with somebody, and I mentioned how in Manhattan about. Uh, almost 25% of all of the property in Manhattan is um, landmarked by the uh, Landmark and uh -huh. Preservation <laughs> Commission, which which makes it difficult to change the architecture of 
that particular area. And this other person sort of chastised me for saying, well, we want to preserve our culture. We want to preserve our lifestyle. Now, of course, uh, landmarking may not do that. And, and of course, I would not I would never argue against trying to preserve a, the culture of a neighborhood or things like that. Um, but I would, would say that um, um, you have to be careful. Uh, this this, this um, a desire to preserve the, the, the character or culture of a neighborhood, you know, is often used by activists when they're talking about uh, uh, low-income neighborhoods that are that, that are, you know, particular ethnicity and they want to preserve it. But that same argument obviously is used by people on, in, in wealthy neighborhoods. You know, we want to preserve our lifestyle and against, against intrusions and other people coming in. And of course you can uh, expand that to the national levels and we don't want those people coming in and changing our culture. It's, it's kind of a, 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 an error in, you know, in, in conceiving what, what a culture is, a culture as a static thing that you can enjoy and it belongs to you and all that kind of thing it's not it's 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 like language it changes all the time and you know it is it's flexible and because it's it changes and it's flexible uh it it makes it uh, adaptable and, and and useful and increases the value but at the same time there is tragedy right you lose certain uh things you're used to uh Certain practices uh, go by the wayside. Uh, you know, people you knew go away, and it's, it, ch- it changes. And it's, you know, that's life. <laughs> it's, uh-huh. it's an inevitable part of. It's an inevitable part of life. But if you try to preserve that, uh, you know, there'd be some frustration. I mean, if you try to preserve it using, you know, a violence, uh, a, you know, the, the violently preventing people from moving in or from leaving, uh, which is even worse, um, then you got real problems. Yeah, that's it's interesting to draw that connection too, just between maybe at the at the macro level, um, concerns about the economy changing. Yeah, uh, I guess th- they strike me as pretty similar. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it is. I think fundamentally the same thing. It's a very conservative notion that we want to, you know, we want to preserve this way of life. Uh, we want to preserve the jobs, uh, you know, the kind of manufacturing jobs that we had in the 1950s and 60s, you know, those, the manufacturing, when people say that manufacturing is declining in the United States, you know, they don't know what they're talking about, or let me, excuse me, I shouldn't say that. They have a a certain thing in mind. Um, They're they're talking about uh, uh, the steel industry or the automobile industry, making things, right? That's what they mean, doing stuff with your hands. With with hundreds of employees in a plant. Exactly, and, but and, and manufacturing is, is is much higher now than as a as a, uh, as, a as a proportion of uh, of our gross domestic product. The manufacturing sector is much bigger than it was then. It's just that there are fewer people employed in those kinds of things, and what is being manufactured is different. It's, uh, but it's it's a kind of nostalgia for a particular way of life, which is which everybody has. Right? There's there's no. Uh, you know, we can't really uh, criticize people for feeling nostalgia, but trying to use you know um, uh, public policies and coercion to 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 force people to 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 uh, not come in or force people not to leave or to prevent people from changing the way they're doing things, you know that that definitely has some negative unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess you, too, you it's not just with urban neighborhoods. You, I guess you'd see this in suburban neighborhoods where, where development's pretty tightly restricted as well. 
Oh, uh, yeah. Um, although, you know, suburbs are changing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a particular stereotypical stereotypical view of, of kind of a mono monoculture uh, that goes on in the suburbs. Um, you know, purely residential and things like that. That that's certainly not the case. And what's interesting is that historically, this this idea that suburbs are boring and and um, not places of innovation is relatively new. Um, I think, right? My reading of this is that uh, the kind of suburbanization that that has a um, a bad reputation uh, is was developed post World War Two. You know, immediately after the war, um, but historically, and I'm, and I'm, you know, going back to uh, hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years. Uh, the the real interesting developments often come in the suburbs. That is to say, in the fringes of the city, where the uh, political political control of newcomers is is not as strong uh, outside the city walls where uh, merchants and foreigners would gather because they were not allowed to live in the city. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. obviously generalizing here, but, but uh, there's a greater freedom in the suburbs to do things uh, than in, within, within the city proper. And, and so um, innovations and changes often came from the outside, uh, just on the, out, on the periphery of the city rather than sort of the, the, the downtown uh, uh, middle of the city. Uh, so this idea that, that suburbs are somehow inherently um, uh, uncreative or boring is uh, kind of a, a relatively new phenomenon. Mm. I, I want to touch back on, we were talking about uh, sweeping historical preservation and, <clears throat> I guess, restrictions on development more broadly. Um, a lot of people have taken Jacobs' work um, to make the case for... Uh, tightening restrictions on functioning neighborhoods like, let's say, Greenwich Village or um, here in D.C. it might be DuPont Circle. These are right. really these are really nice walkable um, neighborhoods, a nice diversity of, of businesses and residents, uh, increasingly yeah. less for residents. Um, but these are really nice neighborhoods. Uh, mm-hmm. So on the one hand, it seems completely reasonable to try to preserve them. But mm-hmm. you, you might argue that that's uh, not in the spirit of Jacobs's work. Could you talk more about the practical policy implications of her work? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, she has had a, a, a significant impact. I mean, there are others. She wasn't alone in, in uh, you know, behind all this this influence to to be more careful, you know, shall we say, in 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 building large projects, uh, particularly public projects. Um, uh, and these days, the some of the, in my opinion, um, biggest uh, uh, damage is done by private and public. Uh, cooperative projects um, <laughs> that build sports stadia and these kinds of things that, that are that are really kind of uh, 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 drain economies rather than boost them. But anyway, um, you know, with respect to to, to the preservation of, of neighborhoods, I it's it's really it's very difficult. I I I don't um, uh, want to say something anything too strongly here because she did jane jacobs did support the landmarks preservation movement in mm-hmm. new york city uh my family and i happened to live in the very first neighborhood in new york city that was uh, this was done to it's a uh, brooklyn heights um and uh she was particularly um 
behind the landmarking of buildings. Uh, you know, New York's Penn Station, I think, was probably the the catalyst for a lot of the preservation movement. Um, and and certainly, you know, I think in some instances she would support uh, landmarking and preserving of certain neighborhoods. But but as I said, to you know, a moment ago, 25% of Manhattan, or about 25% of Manhattan, four percent of New York City is 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 landmarked. Uh, so that doesn't sound like very much, but but. Manhattan, you know, almost a quarter of Manhattan is, is, is landmarked. I think she might have some problem with that. I, I, I can't speak for her, mm-hmm. but, but uh, you know, she, there was a chapter in uh, Death and Life. Um, oh, I forget exactly which one it is, but it, she has a, uh, uh, a sentence there uh, that goes something like, a city cannot be a work of art. And uh, because a city is, is the is the work of, uh, of many minds, not a single mind. And uh, if you try to, um, if you try to uh, uh, put into place policies that views the city as a work of art to preserve it in a certain way, what you don't get is art, she says. What you get is taxidermy. Right? You have <laughs> a, a stuffed animal. It's a disturbing image. Yeah, but and that's you know my neighborhood is very pretty, very charming. Uh, but nothing really happens here, right? No, no this, is, this is what um, Max Weber might call a consumption neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, people come here to spend their wealth rather than to create it. And just outside of uh, uh, this neighborhood, there are all kinds of things happening, lots of building and construction, which is, which is forbidden here. Um, so I think a city like New York, which is very wealthy and has very creative areas, you know, can afford can afford to have certain neighborhoods that are, you know, preserved like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, eventually, you're going to reach a point. I mean, you never hear people at the city level asking themselves the question. They may ask themselves in private, but you don't hear them asking this publicly. Is okay? What is optimal? Right? <laughs> how, how many? How much more preservation? How much more preservation can we do? Because and, and because they never look at the costs. Right. There, there are costs of doing this, which Jacobs points out. Right, there's the dynamism to a city that requires change, um, that uh, will disappoint as well as encourage. And so, uh, that since that aspect of it is is rarely asked, which is because it's a political decision. Uh, you know, my guess would be it's going to it's just going to go uh, uh, too far. Mm-hmm. I'd like to close by by maybe talking about Jacobs's broader work. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people read the death and life of the great American cities, um, but I'm surprised by how few people uh, read some of her other books, uh, the economy of cities, uh, in particular systems of survival. Right. Um, I was yeah. surprised by how much I love systems of survival. It's written <laughs> as a platonic dialogue. Um, yeah. and it's all about you know morality and ethics. Um, what can we? What can we learn about Jacobs's broader, maybe political philosophy or, or, or social vision from from some of her other books? Well, she's very elusive, and, and I, intentionally so, I think. Uh, maybe that's not quite the right word to put it. She, she, you know, she didn't like to be pigeonholed ideologically. Uh, she had many friends on the left. She had Marxist's friends, and she had many friends on the right, including members of her family. And and um, in her, in, so her writing. You know, she, she walks a very fine line. Um, so in Sim- Systems of Survival, for example, in which she talks about 
um, a uh, you know the guardian syndrome versus the commercial syndrome. That is to say, uh, a set of of norms that are or, or that uh, fit uh, the uh, um, uh, the public realm versus a set of norms that fit the the commercial and private realm. Right? She's she never says one is better than the other. Um, uh, you know, but although the particular norms that uh, uh, fall under the case of, uh, of governmental are, are you know, uh, kind of uh, not particularly attractive, right? Use, <laughs> yeah. You know, using uh, dishonesty, uh, using you know, power and things like that. But, whereas, but she might say they have their place. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I'm trying to say. They they do have the place. She's not. She's certainly not uh, an anarchist um, or anything like that. And, and her lesson is that uh, given these two very different spheres of activity, the problems come when you try to mix the two, which I think is very interesting. You get these what she calls monstrous hybrids, monstrous ethical hybrids, uh, where you're not sure what's right or wrong. I think that's very valuable. But I think, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a classical liberal, uh, you can get a lot out of reading that book. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's all based – on an insight that other classical liberals and uh, have have um, have made, and it is that she says very clearly, there are only two ways that you can become wealthy or that you can gain wealth in society. One way is through trade, right? You produce something, you trade it, or things like that. And the other way is is through theft, right? You take it, right? And so, in the case of the guardian syndrome, it's based on taking. In the case of the commercial syndrome, it's it's based on trade, and that kind of motivates both of these two kinds of structs, these systems of ethics. Um, but that's that's a profoundly uh, libertarian um, observation, I think. And, and mm-hmm. how how she develops that and spins that, I think, is 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 really really interesting. Um, but you know, <laughs> her friends on the net on the left never quote that book. <laughs> uh, uh, it, uh-huh. uh, and, and, and her, her book, uh, on uh, the nature of economies in which she finally understand, or in which she, she probably understood the role of prices before, but she articulates the, the information role of prices. She doesn't really do that, uh, before, uh, that, that book, uh, nature of economies, which was published in 2000. Uh, and, and she comes out hard against subsidies. She comes out even harder against price controls and she mentioned specifically rent control right she was opposed to rent control hmm. and you never hear that quoted <laughs> that's, not, <laughs> that's not what uh, uh, uh at least on the left that's her classic uh, insight right yeah i think <laughs> well i mean you know it, it was an, it, it was a relief to, to finally read that because yeah. in 61 she doesn't you know or even in 69 in her second book um the economy of cities uh, it's interesting, it's fascinating, very process dynamically, but, but she does prices, or, or prices don't play a very significant role at all. Um, and they finally do in, in uh, the nature of economies. Um, so yeah, so her, I think at, at, her, in, uh, at heart, she is an economist, but um, like Hayek and others, she's uh, contributed to other areas. So I think really she uh, should be considered more broadly as a social theorist. I completely agree. And on that note, um, my guest today has been Sandy Akeda. Um, Sandy, thanks for joining the Market Urbanism oh. podcast. Uh, it was a pleasure. The time went by very quickly. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you, Noah.